Thanks for being here this morning. And if you're uh, joining us online, thank you for joining us as well. My name's John. I am the Regional Executive Director of the Rocky Mountain Church Network, which is an association of churches that First Baptist of Riverton belongs to. And I am incredibly thankful to be here this morning. Uh, we have lots of connections with First Baptist of Riverton. In fact, over the last week, um, I've spoken either in person or on the phone with Pastor Tom. Uh, last week, I went and met him in Longmont, and uh, we sat and just talked about life and their situation and prayed together. Uh, I talked on the phone to uh, Pastor Rex, uh, had a, a long conversation with him. And then if you think even further back, uh, on Thursday, I had coffee with Pastor Gordon Penfold and uh, spent some good time getting to know him. But even beyond that, and you'll have to excuse me, from time to time, you'll see I get choked up and I just, I cannot help it. Um, as I stand here this morning, I'm standing uh, in the same church where I preached my very first sermon, was right here in Riverton, Wyoming in 1992. Uh, it was uh, an incredible thing where uh, I was uh, in Thermop, uh, had married Lori Goodman, who now is uh, Lori Kraft, obviously, and uh, <laughs> uh, we were there uh, trying to figure out what our next step in life was. Lori's mom was battling cancer, so we didn't want to get too far away. I had graduated from Bible college, and uh, someone here at First Baptist knew that uh, there was a Bible college graduate in the next town over who was available. I think it was uh, when Pastor Ayers was here, and uh, he was gone on vacation, and so they asked if I would come and preach. I am really, really, really thankful there is no surviving audio recording of that sermon because I'm sure it was embarrassing, but, <laughs> but it is such a privilege to be back here. All right, uh, this morning, uh, we are diving into Jeremiah chapter 29. If you have a Bible, you can turn there, Jeremiah 29. Uh, Jeremiah is one of the four major prophets. You look at the Old Testament, you've got uh, the books of the law, you've got books of history, you have the wisdom literature, which is like uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. Uh, you may have noticed the Song of Solomon's password protected in your Bible, <laughs> uh, then we have the, uh, the prophets. They're broken into two groups. There's major prophets, minor prophets. Major prophets, there's four of them, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, or Ezekiel and Daniel. Uh, as you look at those four major prophets, and you've got the minor prophets. Those are those guys where they, the pages in your Bible still stick together because you haven't read them very much. Uh, the, they're not minor prophets because they're less important. They're minor prophets because they wrote less. They're just smaller books. So Jeremiah, one of the major prophets, Jeremiah chapter 29, we'll work through verses 1 through 11 as we look at some very important things, some very important thoughts, thinking about God's plan and what that looks like for you and me. Uh, Jeremiah 29, I'm going to pray for us, and then we will get right to work. So let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this incredible opportunity to spend time together uh, thinking about your word, to th thinking about uh, your will and your plan for us and how you would have us live that out. 
And so, God, I pray that as uh, we take these few moments to open your word together, uh, to think about Jeremiah 29, to think about how you and we interact with one another and how we and culture interact with one another. God, I pray that you are honored and glorified in this time. God, I pray that, that right now you would take me as the preacher, as the speaker this morning, and fill me with your spirit to empower me to communicate to your people this morning so that this is not simply a way to pass time. This is not simply a way uh, just to disseminate some information, but so that when we leave out of here in a few moments, that we look a little more like Jesus and we live a little more like he would in the midst of a culture that needs to see who he is and what he wants to do for them. So God, I pray that you'd guide our conversation this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So like uh, most young men, I had to come to a point in my life where I really thought, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? What, what do I think uh, I'm wired to do? Now, I, I came to this point after going through kind of the, the typical childhood phases. You know, kids grow up, and they, want, they say, this is what I want to do. I went through a phase where I wanted to be a, uh, an astrophysicist. I thought that was like what my calling in life was to be, an astrophysicist. Then right after that, I said, no, I don't want to be an astrophysicist. I want to be a garbage man. Seriously, those two things butted up to against one another. But then I got really serious about what I wanted to do. And, and so I sat and I thought, how has God designed me? What am I wired to do? What's my personality? What's my giftings? And I thought, the best thing that I could do is to be a high school chemistry teacher. I really love science. I, I, I looked at how I was wired. I thought, even as a high schooler, I thought, you know, I would be good working with high schoolers in the future. So I set the course of my life uh, to be a chemistry teacher. I, I, I was living in Tucson, Arizona, that's where I grew up, and, and I, I was going to go to the University of Arizona I was going to major in chemistry, minor in secondary education. So I'm getting all set and I, I'm preparing and, and I look at what you need to do to go to the University of Arizona and major in chemistry. And they, they require two years of a language in high school. So I, I looked and they said, okay, we recommend either German or Russian because uh, a quarter of the world's science books are written in one of those two languages. I thought, okay, and I had a lot of friends who were taking German. I wanted to be different, so I took Russian. I took two years of Russian in high school. Now, unfortunately, I can only remember two phrases in Russian, and I apologize, like, beforehand, but the two phrases I remember are, I really am sorry, hey, baby, what's your sign? And I'm going to slap you upside the head. Those are, those are the two phrases I remember. And, and somehow I think they actually go together, right? That's like a complete conversation. Let's start off with, Dievushka, Kakoi's knock. And the response would be, Yashlopir, Tibiapagalavia. So that's, if you actually, if you speak Russian, you know that I just butchered it. So I'm taking Russian. I'm getting everything set. I was working my plan and everything was moving well and going forward until it didn't. And then step by step, my plan started falling apart. It's in that season. I helped a friend from my youth group in Tucson move to Southwestern College in Phoenix, Arizona. And I got on the campus and I felt this 
like lifting of all the worries and stress and frustration of my plan falling apart lifted off of me. And I thought to myself, maybe I'll think about going here. And so I talked to a couple of people, ended up finding out that everything was falling right into place. I went back home. That was a Sunday night. Monday morning, I met with my youth pastor and I met with the college pastor at my church. My youth pastor thought it was the best idea in the world for me to go to Southwestern College. My college pastor thought it was the dumbest thing he'd ever heard. I liked what my youth pastor said more, so I listened to him. And that afternoon, I went to Southwestern Conservative Baptist Bible College and discovered that the same things, the same gifting that led me to think that I could uh, work as a chemistry teacher would let me be a high school or youth pastor. Four years of Bible college. 32 years of ministry, and here I am today as the director of an association of churches. And it's at this moment right here that someone will say, oh, John, John, that's, that's Jeremiah 29.11. Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And they look and they say, oh, look, John, John, God had a plan for you and you didn't know what it was, but God's got a plan for you and it just unfolded and, and you it just worked out. God had a plan for you. Look at this. It was so incredible. You were ahead in one direction and God said, no, I want you to go another direction because he knows the plan that he has for you. And we think, yeah, that's God's plan. And we cross stitch it on the pillows and we put it on graduation cards and we're like, yes, this is God's plan. Except I don't think that's what this verse really is saying. See, as I look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, we see this verse, but we have to back out just a little bit and look at it in its context. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 11. And when we zoom out a little bit and we see this verse in its context, what we will see is that this verse has much less to do with a gangly teenager's future, and it has to do with the next slide, that this promise tells us how the people of God respond to a culture that's oppositional to the purposes of God. That's what this passage is about. How the people of God respond to a culture that's oppositional to the purposes of God. Now, this is a great statement. I love this statement. It looks really good on a slide, white letters, yellow highlights. I love that. It'd be really tempting to say, all right, that's it. Let's close with the word of prayer. But how do we do that? That's a high calling. That's a difficult task. So how do we live as the people of God in the midst of a culture that's oppositional to the purposes of God? As we expand out, I think we will see this. So let's take a moment. And look here, Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 4. Let's get the next slide up. First way is that we remember the exile. Look at Jeremiah 29, verses 1 through 4. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem and Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah. Then he gives some uh, kind of historical context for us. And then he says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
Now, notice in this passage, he refers to the exile over and over and over. The exile is important. We have to remember the exile. We have to remember it in two ways. First of those is we have to remember, next slide, that this is a letter which is written to people who are in exile. This letter is written by Jeremiah. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. The Babylonian Empire had risen to power. They marched all over the known world. They were taking over, to, uh, conquering, uh, conquering nations. They came to Israel, and they conquered Israel in 605 B.C. When they conquered Israel, what they did was they took people who lived in Israel, and they deported them from Israel to Babylon. And so Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. He's writing to people who've been plucked from their home and put into Babylon. That happened in three deportations, three waves of deportations. This letter is written after the second one of those. Jerusalem would be destroyed 11 years later. So here we are, Jeremiah in Jerusalem, writing a letter to people who were in exile. They had been taken, kidnapped, removed from their home, put into Babylon. They were the definition of the people of God living in the midst of a culture that's oppositional to the purposes of God. In fact, you go through the rest of the Bible, you get in the New Testament. Several times the authors of the New Testament uh, use the word Babylon to refer to the enemies of God. And so here we have the people of God living in the midst of a, of, a, of a culture that's oppositional to the purposes of God. And so we have these instructions written to people in exile, but we have to remember, next slide, next one, that we are in exile as well. You and I, we are in exile right now. And the reason I say that is because God's people always are. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to prove it to you. And I'm going to prove it to you by preaching through the entire Bible right now, whole Bible. So buckle up, because <laughs> here we go. Here's the story of the Bible. God created a home. God created everything that we see. And then God created people to live in that home. The people that God created to live in that home, they blew it. They sinned. They had one commandment, and they broke it. The people sinned. The people blew it. So God sent people out of that home for a very important reason. See, Adam and Eve, as they had sinned, as they had blown it, as they had broken the one commandment that they had, God, towards the end of uh, Genesis chapter 3, you see God say, we have to drive the people out of the garden because in the garden was the tree of life. And God's concern was that Adam and Eve would be able to eat of the tree of life forever and live forever in a sinful state. And so God drives Adam and Eve out. It's an act of punishment, yes, but it's also an act of mercy. So they are prevented from access to the tree of life. Then as uh, you see in Genesis chapter 3, as, as God is uh, doling out curses, as he's talking about the ramifications, the implications of their sin, he gives a promise that one day they'd be able to return, that one day he would provide the way. So now we're up to Genesis chapter 3. Don't worry, we'll go a little faster from this point out. Then God tells people, he prepares them 
for the way to get home. That's the rest of the Old Testament. Then God provides a way for people to go home. That's what we see in the Gospels. Then he tells his people, here's how you live as you wait until you get home. That's the rest of the New Testament. Until you get to the very end and God brings his people home. That's the book of Revelation. And when you get to the very end of the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2, John has this uh, vision of new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem coming down. And he talks about the new Jerusalem. And he talks about the streets of gold. And he says there's a river of life that flows through it. And on either side of the river of life is the tree of life. The thing that God said, my people whom I created, they can't have access to this because they're in sin. Now that he's taken care of sin through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, now he brings his people home and they have access once again to the tree of life. And the exiles return home. See, we are in exile because we are not where we're going. And I'm telling you this morning, that every frustration that you have comes because you're in exile. When you woke up this morning and your body hurt, that's because you're in exile, okay? When you get to heaven, your final home, you have a new body. It's a glorified body. There's no pain. There's, there's no sickness. There's no disease. You are brought home. The, that frustration of the exile is done. Your relationship, I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but somebody in the room had a little tension with their spouse this morning. Why? The exile hurts relationships. Frustration with culture, frustration with government. Why? The exile, that God is at work fixing and ending ultimately by bringing us home. The problem that we have is we get these frustrations about our exile and we try to handle it the wrong way by doing this. We either try to escape our exile or fix our exile. We try to escape our exile by withdrawing and removing ourselves from culture. And we create all of our own little subcultures, our own education, our own music, our own entertainment, our own literature. We do all of these things to try to withdraw. Now, I'm not saying those are wrong but they don't do anything about the exile. The exile's still there. Sometimes we look at the exile and we say, we have got to fix this. We've got to change it. And so we try activism and we try to get involved politically and we try to just do what we can to make everything better. I'm going to tell you, I'm not opposed to any of that, but it's not going to fix the exile. Here's how I know. Nation of Israel, remember they are where? They're in exile. Under the Babylonians. The Babylonians, one night they're partying too hard, and the Persians come in and take over <laughs> because the Babylonians are a no state to this to stop them. Persians take over. A king named Cyrus says, You know what, children of Israel, go home. They get the change in government they had wanted. They get to go home, and they go home. They rebuild Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple, and they rebuild the temple, and they stand back, and they weep. Even though they had gotten everything they wanted, they were still in exile. 
the temple wasn't as good. And even though they'd been able to go home, they were still subjects of Persia. The exile remains. The same thing is true for you and for me. No matter what we do, we're still in exile. Why? Because we are not where we're going. And so if that's the case, then how do we live as the people of God in the midst of a culture that's oppositional to the purposes of God? I think this passage really unlocks some keys for us. Here's how we live in exile. Next slide. Live life. Look at Jeremiah chapter 29, starting in verse 5. I think this is some of the most important things that you and I as the people of God can understand and live out. Jeremiah 29, verse 5. Written to people in exile, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that, there may, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Live life. I love, I love this passage. Build houses and plant gardens. What's he saying? Be productive. Live life. Build stuff. Plant stuff. Enjoy the fruits of your labor. Live life. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens. Eat of their produce. And then, this is so cool. He says, get married. Have kids. And have grandkids. He talks about three generations here celebrating new life. I love, I love that we had kids up here this morning. I love that we had kids up here that were leading us in worship. I love that we had kids up here who were reminding us of scripture. Why? Because there is something so cool about the next generation rising up and the, and the previous generation celebrating that and saying, yes, we are living life and we are celebrating new life. Live life. Then he says, seek the welfare of the city. Uh, next, next verse. So uh, verse 6. Verse 7, he says, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Okay, so now this is a letter. Remember, you have to keep that in mind. This is a letter. It's sent to people living in exile. Where are they? Babylon. Who took them there? Babylon. Do they want to be there? No, they want to be home. And what, is, what does Jeremiah say? Seek the welfare of the city. So if I'm in this crowd and I'm listening to this letter, you know, someone comes and says, hey, we got a letter from the prophet Jeremiah. I'm like, oh, it's going to be so good to know what's going on. You know, please read that letter. And so I'm in this group and he's reading the letter and it comes and he says, seek the welfare of the city. I'm like, oh, 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 hold on now. Wait, back this thing up. Seek the welfare of the city. Jeremiah, do you remember what they did? They kidnapped us. Not only did they kidnap us, but they killed our friends, our leaders. How do I know that? Jeremiah 29, 1. In the, in the list of people that this is addressed to, uh, Jeremiah says, uh, it's from Jeremiah, the prophet sent to the surviving elders. What does it mean if there are surviving elders? It means there are elders who did not survive. And so I'm listening to this letter. I'm like, Jeremiah, you don't, that is, that is a big ask. You don't under, you don't, maybe you don't realize where we are and what happened to get us here. 
But Jeremiah says, seek the welfare of the city because in its, your, in its welfare, you'll have welfare. Jeremiah says, be a part of the community. Be caring for it. Pray for it. Now, some of us, we're used to praying for our city or we're used to praying for our country. And normally our prayers will look like this. If it's someone in leadership who will like, we'll pray something like, you know, God, thank you so much. And we pray that you give them wisdom and we pray that you protect them and we pray that you'd help them. But someone who we don't like, we'll pray something like, God, please help them see what an idiot they are. Seek the welfare of the city. For in its welfare, you'll have welfare. Another way to say it is to show love. Think about them before you think about yourself. Seek the welfare of the city. It's easy for us to get sideways on us. Here's a couple of questions to ask yourself to see if you've gotten a little sideways on seeking the welfare of your city. Have you been so busy pointing out sin that you've forgotten to love? Now, we'll sometimes try to excuse it away by saying, well, you know, we're just loving because we want them to live better lives. But really in our heart, we're just busy pointing out things we don't like. Have you been so busy judging that you haven't sought the welfare of your community? You look at people in your town and you think, man, how do people live like that? How do they make such bad choices? And we become so busy judging that we don't seek to help people. Have you been so busy trying to escape or fix your exile that you haven't shown love or giving, given hope? As individual believers, as an individual person of God living in a culture that's oppositional to the purposes of God, we have to constantly wrestle through these questions to ensure that our heart is right and that we're seeking the welfare of the community that God has entrusted to us. The next way that we live this out as we see God's plan unfold is to have hope, to have hope. Uh, first way we do this is to remember the plan. Remember the plan. If you back up to uh, Jeremiah 29, uh, verse 8, he says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, don't, le don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it's a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So what's happening here is uh, some of the prophets, so-called prophets, who are in the midst of the people of God were saying, you know what, this is about done. This is, we're almost through this. And God says, hey, 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 don't listen to them. I didn't say that. Now he communicates. He says, for thus says the Lord, verse 10 of Jeremiah 29, thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. So we remember the plan. We remember the plan. We remember that God is at work fulfilling his promise. Even in the midst of the frustration with our exile, God is at work. Even when you don't see it, when you don't feel it, when it seems like everything is going off the rails, God is at work. Uh, think of the children of Israel. They're in, they're in, uh, in exile. They've been removed from their home by, by a foreign enemy who killed their elders and kidnapped them and took them thousands of miles away from their home. And they are there. You think they thought things were going off the rails? And yet God says, my plan is unfolding. I know the plan that I have for you. We have trust. We have faith that he is at work. 
But as we do that, we have to remember that it will take time. You and I, we like things like this. There's a, there's a little like detail that God through the prophet Jeremiah slides in here. I don't know if you noticed it. So remember, letter written to people in exile. They're looking for hope. For thus says the Lord, verse 10, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. So like anyone over 10 years old is looking around, hey, wait, can you back up just a little? Did you, 70 years? What that means is that the vast majority of people who heard this letter died before it was fulfilled. The vast majority of people that this letter was written to did not see its fulfillment. They were dead and gone. Not because the Babylonians killed them, but because they just got old and died. 70 years is a long time. But it does not mean that to the people of Israel that God was not good or even that God was not prospering them, was not caring for them. It just meant that God's timeline oftentimes is a little different than ours. And we have to realize that God is at work, even though it seems like it's taken longer than we would hope. Then we remember the one who's in control. We remember that there is someone who says, I have a plan for you, and my plan is unfolding before you as you live your life in the midst of a people who are oppositional to the purposes of God. I'm afraid that in my own life, I will forget this. And it seems like things are going sideways, and I'm so frustrated, and I think there's nothing that can be done. And I throw up my hands. I say, that's it. But, next slide, when we get overwhelmed by our exile, we forget that we know the one who will end it. He has the ability, he has the power, and he has the will to bring our exile to an end. And when we don't believe that, we end up like a guy in the Bible you've heard of, John chapter 20. His name is Thomas. His nickname is Doubting Thomas. Yes. He's called Doubting Thomas because in Luke chapter 24, there's a scene where uh, Thomas is gone. It's after Jesus has died. He's been buried. The disciples are hearing rumors that he's risen from the dead. Some women come back. They say, we've seen Jesus. Uh, some, uh, some, some people say, yes, Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, but the disciples, they're in a locked room. And it says they're in a locked room because they're afraid of the Romans. Or they're afraid of what's going to happen to them. And so they're hiding. For some reason, Thomas isn't there. We don't know where he ran to the store. We don't know. He's just gone. Jesus shows up in the midst of a locked room, interacts with the, the, the 10 disciples who are there, and then he leaves. Thomas comes back from his errand, and the, and the other disciples are like, Thomas, we saw Jesus. And what does Thomas say? Unless I can touch his hand, unless I can put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And in one phrase, he gets the nickname, Doubting Thomas. I'm convinced he's up in heaven somewhere going, Come on, guys, it was one time. <laughs> like for all eternity, you're calling me Doubting Thomas. One time. Now, I give Thomas the benefit of a doubt because just earlier that week, Jesus had taught what? Many will say to you, here's the Christ. Don't believe him. So I actually think there's a lot of honor and integrity in, in Thomas's question. But that's besides the point. That's a sermon for a different time. Jesus then appears to the 11 disciples. Thomas is present. And before Thomas says anything, Jesus says, touch my hand. Put your hand in my side. The exact same thing Thomas said. And Thomas does what? 
he falls down and he worships. And he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus' response is incredible. He says to Thomas, blessed are, he says, you see and you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And we will often use that verse talking about people today coming to faith in Jesus. And it's a beautiful picture that like nobody in this room has seen Jesus and yet we can believe in him. And yet I think there's something deeper in Jesus' statement. As I read this, I actually see a little bit of hurt in Jesus' words because he looks at Thomas and he's like, Tom, you saw me do miracles. You saw me, you heard me teach. You saw me take a few little bits of bread and feed thousands. You saw me heal the deaf. You saw me heal the blind, which by the way, nobody else ever did. You saw me walk on water. You heard me say that I was going to be killed and on the third day rise again. But you didn't think I could do this one more thing. You didn't think that I could, I could, I had just one more miracle left in me. You didn't think that I could do that. And there are times when we get so overwhelmed by our exile and we throw up our hands, we say, I don't think God can do anything with this. That he looks at us and says, you don't think I can do one more thing? You don't think that I can do this? I am the almighty, all-powerful creator God of the universe. And I know the plan that I have for you. Plan to give you a future and a hope. Plan for your welfare, for your good, not for harm. And it's going to take a long time. <laughs> but someday, the exile comes to an end. But in the meantime, as the people of God living in exile in the midst of a culture that's oppositional to the purposes of God, we can live life, be productive, build houses and live in them, plant gardens, eat from them, have kids, have grandkids, celebrate good things, show love, care about the city that God has entrusted to you, pray for it, seek its welfare, do what you can to show love as the hands and feet of Jesus. And then lastly, have hope because ah, things seem dark. Someone goes and shoots up an elementary school classroom. You're like, what in the world is going on? How can, how can this be? What can we do about this? And it's dark. It seems like God's forgotten that little corner of Texas. He hasn't. It's just we're in exile. Bad things happen when we're in exile, but we have hope that we follow the one who's bringing our exile to an end. And it's in that hope that we live life and we show love and we look to an end to our exile. And you might be here to this morning and you're thinking, you know what? My exile is super real. And I don't, I don't know that I have hope. I, I don't know that I have any way out of this darkness that I'm in. I want you to know that there is a way. And that way is through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only reason Jesus came and lived and died was to take care of the exile and to take care of the sin that binds us. And if you're here this morning, you can know that the beginning of the end of your exile can happen right now. When you recognize that Jesus died for your sin, to pay the penalty for the wrong that you've done so that you can be forgiven and that you can have the hope that one day, you step into the new Jerusalem and eat from that tree of life.
and spend eternity free from the exile. If you want to know more about that, you can talk with me, you can talk with uh, Pastor Allen. Uh, we would love to, one of the elders here at the church, we would love to tell you more about what Jesus did when he died in your place and on your behalf. But for now, let's wrap up our time together with a word of prayer. Let's stand together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your great and incredible love for us as, as seen in Jesus, the one who came and lived and died uh, to bring an end to the exile. And Father, we recognize that as your people, we are waiting for that exile to come to an end, that it's, it's come to an end maybe personally for us uh, spiritually as our sin has been removed. And yet practically and experientially, we still walk through this time where we are not where we're going. And so, God, I pray that in the midst of this, in the midst of our exile that we experience right now, that you would, that you would truly help us to live life, to show love, and to have hope. And that as we do that, God, that we are people who have hope that your plan, your ultimate plan will be fulfilled in us as our exile is brought to an end. Uh, for someone here who maybe wants to know more about Jesus and what he did when he died on the cross, God, I pray that you'd give them the boldness and the courage to come and, and to chat with someone so that maybe today would be the day that their exile ends as well. God, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you for this time together. And all God's people together said, amen. Amen. Everyone, thank you for being here this morning. It's so good to be gathered together. We look forward. I'm going to be back in uh, a little over a month. I'm not going to tell you what day because I want you to keep coming back. And uh, <laughs> no, we, we can't wait to come back and spend time worshiping with you again. We're excited for the future of First Baptist Church. And we know that God has good things for you as you walk through your exile here in Riverton, showing love, having hope, and living life. Everyone, thank you for being here. God bless. Have a great day and a safe Memorial Day weekend.